0: Throughout the book of Romans. And so we uh, took a little hiatus um, for a series during Christmas and we're back in Romans chapter 5. Hopefully you have a bulletin. There is an outline for this morning's message and we'll recap a little bit about what we discussed last week because this is part two of the benefits of believing. What what are the benefits of believing in Christ? Are there any such benefits? And if there are, what, what would those be? Now, one of the misconceptions we have about salvation or a relationship with Jesus is that it's just all about getting me into heaven, and certainly that is a fringe benefit, but that's not the ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose is what the Bible calls spiritual formation, God's forming Christ in you, that God is restoring the image in which you were created that was distorted and marred by sin. And so the goal is that God wants to create within us uh, the mind of Christ that we begin to think like Jesus thought with truth rather than based on lies, but based on truth rather than false narratives, truthful narratives, because our mind is the control center of our life and how you think affects the way you feel, which is in what meaning you act. It, it affects how you perceive life, how you perceive yourself, what your purpose is and what meaning is. And, You know Who created you and where did you come from and why are you here? All of those things. And so as God's formulating truth into our minds, that's the control center of our lives, it then filters down into our character. We begin to develop the character of Christ, which is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, goodness, those things. Then ultimately we are able to live out the life of Christ. That, That is like Jesus here on earth, we can love as Christ loved. And so Jesus narrowed the two commandments of God in in taking the whole Bible and saying, well, here's, here's, if I were to take the whole Bible and say, what's the message? He says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others as yourself. And so he's trying to teach us how to do that. And so Paul put it this way, who's the writer of Romans in Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. He says, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Now, we talked about last week that we have three enemies that fight against us, having Christ formed within us. There is Satan, there is the flesh, and that is the old unredeemed part of you, the the part of you that just wants to live by your natural instincts and impulses. And then there is the world. And so the world system that says, hey, um, you know, we will determine what's moral, what's not moral. Let's strip God out of that and it'll be based then on our opinions. And so what Satan does is he fills our minds with deceptive ideas that play into our distorted desires, the flesh, that are normalized by sinful society. Society will say, well, this is normal. This is good. And if if God says it's not good, then God's wrong, we're right. And so we become judge and jury over what is wrong, what is right, what is good, what is bad, so on and so forth. And we tend to rely upon our conscience, but our conscience is not always a reliable source of truth because our conscience has been distorted by sin. So what Paul's saying in Romans is like we were in a messed up condition and in our messed up condition, Jesus came and died for us so that through him, we can have a newfound relationship where we develop the mind of Christ, the character of Christ, the life of Christ, so that we will know the truth and the truth will set us free from our hurts, habits, and hangups. Because if we try to do that on our own, it just does not work out very well. So Romans 5 through 8 are very pivotal chapters in this book that teaches us how to know the truth, how to live the truth, how to, be, how to walk in the freedom of Christ, the freedom setting us free from our hurts, habits, and our So, we said the first benefit last week is that we have peace with God. So, we'll just hit these first three and we'll pick up the next three because there are six of them. We've already discussed three of them. Notice he says, Therefore, since we have been justified, Romans 5 1, through faith, we have peace with, with God. What does that word justified mean? Remember, it is a judicial act of God whereby he declares us not guilty. That he forgives us all of our sins, past, present, and future. He clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. So when God looks upon you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees Jesus. And even the faith we needed to have faith in Christ is the faith that God gave to us as a gift so that not only we would have faith to come to Christ, but we would have the supernatural faith of God within us to begin transforming our thought processes, transforming our character, transforming our lives, thus setting us free from our hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And so this is a, this is a judicial act. Now, um, and it's, it's, it's a one-time thing. Peace with God. The war is over. Romans 8, 7 says the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. So the important thing about justification is this is in the aorist tense in the Greek, which means it is a past completed action never to be repeated. Therefore, this is eternal salvation, right? This is eternal security. You can't be justified one day and unjustified the next day and justified the next day and unjustified the next day. No, God, when you put your faith in Jesus, God justified you in Christ, forgave all your sin, clothed you in Christ, gave you faith to enable you to take the truth and to put the truth into your thought processes, to yield freedom from hurts, habits and hang-ups and what God began, God will continue throughout the course of not just your lifetime, but throughout eternity. He is faithful to his promise and to his word you are justified once and for all. And we talked about the ramifications of that last week, so you can go back and listen to that message. Number 2 is we now because we're at peace with God, we have we have the privilege of access to God. We're standing in his grace. He says, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. And so Hebrews 4.16 reminds us that when we have a need, we have 24-7 access into God's presence. Now the video you saw talked about the God of Moloch and other gods that were happening in Paul's day and time. And they all had one thing in common that you're always trying to appease the gods. You're always trying to placate the gods so that you could be in right standing with them, so that you could receive from them. And God comes along and says, no, 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 uh, that is not going to do you any good I'm coming to you as your creator to be your heavenly father, that you might have grace into my presence. And Hebrews four sixteen reminds us that we have now access into the throne room of God. God invites us into his presence that we might receive grace and power and mercy in anything we need in our time of need. And then there's the preview of the future, the glory of God that is shown to us. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God that's shown to us and released in us. And so, um, for example, the glory of God is God's presence. It's, it's God's moving. For example, um, after I was saved and uh, I struggled with drugs for a long time through high school and after I got saved, I still struggled with that and I wanted to be set free from that and, and I, you know, I tried and I, I did everything I could and I was walking with the Lord and in his word. And so it's like, one day in a service, like the glory of God just came down upon me and miraculously set me free from that and took away any inclination for it, any desire for it. Uh, I mean, it was, a, it was a miracle that I experienced from the power of the Holy Spirit all my life. Well, when you've experienced something like that, you want more of it, right? Just like Moses did and Peter and, and others in the scripture. When you experience the vine touch of God's hand, we long for that. We desire that. We, we want to experience that over and over again. And so then it is released in us. And so justification now deals with our past. Completely forgiven, clothed in the righteous of Jesus. And then access deals with our present. We have access to the Father. We've been dwelt by the Holy Spirit. We can come into God's presence 24-7. And then the glory of God deals with what? Our future. Because the, the glory of God resting upon us and finishing his work means that when this body ceases to function, and my spirit and soul move into the presence of God, and one day this body will be resurrected and made new, and it will be reconformed like Jesus' resurrection body and thus reunited with my spirit and my soul, that God will have now reconnected and re-imaged me in as the, you know, the image that I was created in, but sin had distorted. And so now sin is removed from the equation, and therefore we are in the presence of God in our glorified bodies, in our glorified state of being, which is where we will be for all of eternity. And so that is a benefit, right? This is, I, I know that when I die, you know when you die, you know that this is not the only aspect of life. God never created us for time. He created us for eternity, and everyone will spend eternity somewhere. Either you're under the wrath of God or you're under the grace of God. Either you spend eternity in hell or you spend eternity in heaven, and there is no other option that is on the table. And so through Christ, in faith, in him alone, we have received these three incredible benefits from God that enables us to... to, um, begin the transformation process inside of us. Now, I want to move to the fourth thing, and this is probably one of the most difficult things for people to handle, even for believers. Here's the fourth benefit, is that there is purpose in our pain. There is purpose in our pain because we have a hope that does not disappoint. Pick up in verse 3. He says, not only so, but we also we rejoice, circle that word rejoice, it's the second time we've seen it, we rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope, and hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. Listen, life is not a fairy tale, Right? There's no putting your faith and trust in Jesus to be Savior and Lord of your life, and then you just live happily ever after, pain-free and suffering-free. does not happen. God has never promised that. He never said to anyone, hey, receive Jesus, and life will be beautiful and wonderful, and, uh, I mean, there'll be no ripples in the road, nothing for the rest of your life. But this is what deconstructs people's faith quicker than anything, is because... We have this this perception that, well, you know what? If I'm a really faithful and good Christian, then God will care for me and He will protect me and He will keep me from all suffering and all harm. And it's almost like we have turned God into this cosmic butler that we have put our hope in that, you know, if if any pain or suffering comes, at least He will like immediately get rid of it. Like He'll He'll immediately solve it transform it, whatever. I mean, it's, it might be here today, but it'll be gone by to tomorrow. And this is the concept we have in our minds that, that when bad things happen, though, our faith gets shattered because you've made a deal with God. Well, the deal is, I'll be as good as I can be. I'll do everything you've told, asked me to do. I will pray. I will sing. I will worship. I go to church. I will tell people about Jesus. I will do all those things because I know if I do those things, I will be I will be sheltered from the painful events of life. And what happens if that doesn't happen? What immediately strikes our minds, our thought process? Because here's where Satan takes advantage of you as a follower of Jesus. When suffering hits your life, especially if it's suffering that's ongoing, like you've been praying, but nothing's happening. You've been praying, nothing's changing. You've been praying, it's getting worse. And the pain's getting worse, the suffering's more intense, and over time, the narrative, the false narrative that Satan's going to construct in your thought processes is, hey, what would I tell you? God doesn't love you. In fact, he barely tolerates you. I don't even know if he likes you or not. And so our response often is, well god, you know if you if you truly did like me, if you if you truly do love me then why is this happening to me, and why isn't this getting solved? And and I'm why are you not answering my prayer? I I have access to grace, and I've come into your throne room, and you promised me grace and mercy in my time of need. But there doesn't seem to be any grace or mercy cascading into my situation or my problem. And and Lord, I've been praying for this this job, and it's not coming. And I uh, I just keep feeling this pressure, and it's unrelenting. And why is my relationship still broken when I'm praying for it to be? restored and why do I continue to bout with depression over and over again and why is this so relentless upon me where are you God if you love me so much why is this happening to me and when we are in the midst of suffering and if that weren't bad enough and there is a delay in the answer or there is a delay in the response of God, and we start thinking, Lord, I, I don't know that I can take anymore. I don't know if I have enough patience. I don't know if I, I have the strength to hold out. I, I've got to hear from you. I, I need you to resolve this issue. I need you to remove me from this situation. I don't know if I can go on. Can't you see how desperate I am? Why won't you help me? Now, let me put some flesh and blood on those thought processes. As Paul describes here, he says that our suffering is going to produce perseverance and character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint. So hold your place in Romans 5. We'll come back there, but I want you to go to the book of Psalms, the 13th Psalm, And put some flesh and blood on what it is that happens inside of us when there is pain, when there is suffering, when it is ongoing, when it is not being lifted as quickly as we would desire for that to happen. And so in Psalm 13, David, who would one day be king over Israel, wrote this psalm, but he was not king yet when he penned these words. But what was happening in David's life is that David, as a young shepherd boy, uh, Samuel, the prophet of God, was looking for the next king to be anointed by God because King Saul was going to be on his way out. And so he goes to Jesse's house, and he has several sons, and he brings them all out. And Samuel says, no, it's not them. And do you have another? And he says, yes, I have a, a young son, and he's shepherd. And brings in David, and Samuel immediately understands and realizes this is God's next anointed one to be king over Israel. And so Samuel anoints him to be the next king. And then after that takes place, he doesn't immediately move to the throne. In fact, it'll be 15 years before David actually takes the throne. And so in chapter 17, I believe it is, 1 Samuel is where David now comes out onto the battlefield against the Goliath, who is the giant warrior of the Philistines, who are the enemy of Israel. He walks out onto the field, he takes a stone, and he plants it right into the forehead of Goliath. Goliath topples over, David cuts off his head, and wins victory for Israel, and routs the Philistine armies. Now, as a result of that, People began singing songs about Saul killing his thousands, but David his tens of thousands, and Saul was a little insane by this time. The present king over Israel, he became insanely jealous over David and wanted to take his life. In fact, Saul was so out of control as David's reputation is skyrocketing and his reputation is plummeting, that he made David his enemy, and David feared King Saul. And so David, for almost nine years, was a fugitive fleeing from Saul. He was forced to live out in the fields, in the caves, in the deserts, and wherever he could find some kind of refuge. And eventually he had to leave the land of Israel and go into the land of the Philistines, which, by the way, was what? The enemy whom the soldier that David had killed that caused them to be routed by Israel. And he moved into Gath of the Philistines, and people recognized who David was. And he was the warrior. And so thou David, in order to spare his life, I had to act like he was insane. I mean, drooling down his beard and scratching on the gates of the city. And finally, he leaves Gath, and he goes to Ziglag. And there he's reunited with some soldiers who are faithful men of David's. And so they are there in hiding for years. And so and during this time in 16 months, he lived in Ziglath. And while he was off on a campaign with his men... The Amalekites came in and raided the city of Ziglag, burned it to to the ground, and took all the women and children off into captivity. When David and his men come back and find out what has happened, his soldiers want to kill him. So here's David for years and years on the run, he's a fugitive. He killed a giant, became a hero, was going to be the next anointed king, but now he's on the run for years, and he's physically exhausted. He's emotionally depressed. He is, you know, uh, despiritualized, uh, I would say, or discouraged, and David wanted to know, Lord, how much longer do I have to endure this? How much longer is this going to go on? Is this the way it's going to end? Is this is going to be the climax of my, uh, of my calling by you, God? Where are you in all this? And so here's where he pens these words. And you'll notice that suffering, suffering produces perseverance. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? And so oftentimes... As God is developing perseverance in us. Now, perseverance means to remain under the load until God has accomplished what it is he set out to accomplish in your life. Now, God says he's in the process of spiritually formating our character, fruit of the Spirit. And so, as a result of that, in order for that to take place, it might take a day, may take a week, may take months. Might take years for God to bring you to a point, as James says, of maturity and completeness in what God is seeking to accomplish in your life. But rather than persevere, we want to run, we want to hide, we want to bail, we want to complain, we want to do a lot of things, but persevere until God's done with us. Uh, but God reminds us in Romans 8 that, listen, everything that filters into your life through my hands. Is ultimately for your good, that I will take all things, bad, good, indifferent, and, and I will use them to conform you to the image of Christ. Although it might appear to be unhelpful or unhealthy in your life, I'm, t- I'm assuring you I am, I am doing a good work. And so... David thought, man, I've been forgotten, and when trials usually come, and they extend for a period of time, listen, our faith will last so long, but only so long, and then our faith begins to wane, and it gets harder and harder to persevere as God's completing what it is he's seeking to do in us and And through us and so as that situation continues our faith begins to weaken and like David we want to give up and not only did he feel forgotten but he felt forsaken he says Lord how long will you hide your face from me to hide your face means that you're averting your eyes you don't want to look it's like I see my child from God. David's thinking like, I I see my child, David, and he's struggling. And and man, he's gone through all so much stuff. But I'm going to avert my eyes. I'm going to remove my attention from him. I I don't don't even want to look upon him. This is what David's wondering if God's doing. Why why have you forsaken me? It's one thing to be forgotten because you can forget something unintentionally. But it's a different thing when you forsake somebody. That is an intentional action. And David's like, God, have you hidden your eyes from me? Have you turned your face from me? Have you turned your attention from me? Have you intentionally forsaken me? And David is thinking, I've gone through all of this only to have God abandon me in the end? Now, we recognize these words, why have you forsaken me? From Jesus, right? When Jesus was on the cross... He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm, and we see, first see those words in that messianic psalm. But you have to remember, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then you add, move out of Psalm 22 into Psalm 23, where G- God says, the Lord, Jesus says, I am your shepherd, right? I'm the, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This is what David said, and, and he's, gonna, he's gonna care for me in, in, in every way, shape, and form. But it's life-changing to realize that Jesus himself, enclosed in flesh, experienced the same emotions. But Jesus' case only is that he not only felt forsaken, he was forsaken by God. When, God. when sin was poured out on Jesus, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment, somehow within the Trinity, God turned his back on his son as he poured out his wrath and Jesus absorbed God's wrath on behalf of our sin. Now here's the point. The father turned his back on his son so that he would never, ever have to turn his back on you. Amen. Ever you are justified, you are at peace with God, you have access, you are privileged, you have the glory of God resting on you and before you and in you. And so God says, listen, I will never forsake you. And when you feel forgotten and you feel forsaken, then you begin to feel what? Frustrated. And so David, he said, he feels frustrated. He's like, man, like, do I have to wrestle with my thoughts every day? Do I have to wrestle with my enemy every day? And so this is when you have, when you're frustrated, it's like I'm carrying these emotions with every day I get up and I'm facing the same problem, the same suffering, the same pain. It's like carrying a backpack everywhere I go. I can't shrug it off. I can't get rid of it. I I can't alleviate it. It's just with me 24-7. And listen, there's all kinds of sufferings that you can experience, relational sufferings and physical sufferings and and financial sufferings. Sufferings and setbacks, but I'll tell you, there's nothing more haunting than physical sufferings because it is with you all the time. Every time you get up, every time you wake up, it is there dogging you. And so pain and problems are a constant companion. And David was frustrated because of his enemy everywhere he turned. Saul's against him, his soldiers are against him, God seems to be against him. And David had three, three fears that brought him to his knees. He feared, he was afraid, listen, is this it? Is I, I'm going to die in this condition? God having not fulfilled the promise that I would be king over Israel, are my, are, am my enemy going to prevail against me? Am I going to be disgraced, he says, in the eyes of others? Listen, here's the point, is that this brought David to praying. Not just little quiet prayers, not just like oh let me you know rattle off a prayer to god today before my day gets busy This is a prayer of desperation. This is a prayer that is heartfelt. This is a prayer that just like wakes you up in the morning and and, like you can't wait to get into God's presence because you need a word from God and you need a touch from God and you need someone to help you persevere another day while you're facing this suffering, while you're facing this trial, while you're facing this tribulation so that you can keep taking one step after another day Day after day, as God is formulating Christ in you, until that is brought to completion. So you don't bail on the way, you don't run, you don't hide, you don't give up, and you don't get angry with God to the point like God. I don't even want anything to do with you anymore. I want you out of my life. I wish I'd never come to faith in Christ. I don't see any good or benefit from it. No, David says, "Man, this is what I'm I'm struggling with, but I'm I'm desperate in my prayer." And when you get to this place, I'm telling you, um, and you remain under the load, things begin to change. Maybe not around you, but inside of you, as never before. Because suffering then, as you persevere, produces character. And this idea of proven character is what Peter's talked about, the refiner's fire, like when you wanted to have pure gold, you would put gold under the fire and, and all the impurities would rise to the top and the impurities were scraped away. And once those impurities were removed, you have solid, pure gold. This is what God's in the process of doing. James again called it being mature and complete, lacking in nothing. God is refining our lives and sometimes that refining fire is painful and sometimes it is not pleasant and sometimes it goes on seemingly forever. But I'm telling you, there is nothing that is filtered from God's hands into your life that is not ultimately going to benefit you in some way. You may not see it right now. You may not understand it. David wasn't seeing. He wasn't understanding it at all, but he knew that God was doing an incredible, incredible work in his life. And so God uses oftentimes adversity to help us keep our perspective on what we are here on earth to do we become preoccupied with our circumstances god becomes preoccupied with our character there is no formulation of character in my life that has ever come apart from the deep work of god through some kind of painful event in my life ever And part of that reason is we're not desperate in prayer. We're not desperate in our walk with God when things are going well. It's just far too easy to put God on the back burner of your life and to keep on moving and we start skimming relationally with God. But when the bottom drops out, all of that changes and changes very quickly. And so suffering then brings us to hope. Notice what David says. He says in verse 3, Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice that I fall. Give light to my eyes. All right, so this speaks kind of a of transformation because oftentimes uh, when you go through significant pain and suffering for extended periods of time, you become depressed, Right? You just get depressed, and and we fight those emotions. We fight that depression, and what David is saying, listen, God, lift me out of my depression. Give me new eyes with which to see. Give me a new hope that will stir my heart, that will enable me to continue on, because I know that ultimately you are going to do what it is you said you will do. Notice he says, oh, my Lord God. Oh, Lord, my God, it is Jehovah Elohim. And so Jehovah speaks of the promise. Elohim speaks of the power. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and earth. And what David was acknowledging is that, God, I know that you made the promise. I know that you have the power to do anything you need to do in order to fulfill the promise. And I'm staking my hope and my trust in that, in that alone. And this is where rejoicing comes in. I mean, you go back to, you know, Paul, he says, rejoice in your sufferings. It means to exalt, to celebrate. Why? Because there's purpose in my pain. If there was no purpose in my pain, then we would be people most pitied. But there is always purpose behind the pain as God is working in our our lives. And God, I'm in this trial, and I cannot wait to see what you're going to do and how you're going to use it and how it's going to transform the lives of others. As Job said, but when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. And so David had this hope, and notice how he expressed it. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. For he has been good to me. Now some people are hopeful because you're just optimistic. You assume that tomorrow's going to be better than today just because it's tomorrow. Right? Sometimes people are are hopeful that, you know, whatever doesn't kill me is going to make me stronger. The problem is there's, you, there's some very deep emotional wounds that you can experience in life that will all, all almost kill you because you're not strong enough on your own. Right? There are people who, who try to find hope by medicating themselves through drugs and alcohol, materialism, sexual pleasures, and it always ends badly. When unhappiness is driving you to do these things, it never turns out well. And so Paul reminds, if you go back to Romans chapter 5, that listen, the reason we rejoice is because we know there is purpose behind my pain that will ultimately bring me to a hope that surpasses all understanding in the human mind. I might not see it, I might not understand it immediately, but I know that God is working it out because my perseverance will result in character and character will always result in a newfound hope. And so then the next proof he has for us is the proof of God's goodness and God's love. In verse 6, he says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his love for us, his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his his life? Now, in verse 5 was the first time Paul used the word love in the book of Romans. And so he's saying... We've been, I've been talking about God's wrath. I've been talking about God's grace. And now this idea of, of love gets put in the middle of it. Because when you understand how much God's love has been poured out into your heart, it changes the way you pray. It changes the way you see things. It, it strengthens your faith. It creates intimacy. It brings authentic joy in your life and enhances your stability to walk with God. It results in evangelism because you cannot wait to tell somebody how God has so conformed your life into the image of Jesus that has transformed you in a way that is so powerful because you are experiencing the glory of God. Because as Paul says in Romans uh, in, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, in the midst of my greatest weakness is when the power of Christ is most displayed in my life. And so God is, God's love, he says, is proved by what he has done for us. He died. You notice this is verse 6, 8, and 10. All three times, he, just, he emphasized Christ died for us. Christ died for us. Christ died for us. And God loves you. You need to know that and understand that. It's the greatest proof of God's love. It's not that he left heaven, came a, here as a baby, and lived a righteous life and preached some great sermons and worked miracles. The greatest proof of God's love is that he died for us. Listen, the depth of somebody's love for you is always based on how much they're willing to sacrifice for you. The death of Jesus on the cross, you can't get any deeper sacrifice than that. It's not an ordinary death. He didn't just kind of lay back on the cross and fall asleep and went off into heaven. If you know anything about crucifixion, it was a horrible, horrible way to die. And so 1 John 4:10 says, This is love, that he, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Love is a verb. This means that love is willing to sacrifice. Love does not give up. Love is willing to do something. Love is willing to give. It's never passive. It is never silent. It's always willing to act. And this is the God who loves us. My love is not silent. I'm always willing to act. I I relate to you on the basis of, of love. You know, one of the reasons marriages deteriorate is because couples stop Loving, they stop sacrificing, they stop giving the, their interest and their time and their energy and their care to the relationship. And then it just becomes a legal contract in which two single are under the same roof. They're married legally, but they're living a single life because there's no longer the willingness to sacrifice for the relationship. Not so with God. I like The Lion King and the last Lion King movie I watched with my grandchildren. There was a line in there by Mufasa, and Mufasa, I don't have James Earl Jones' voice, but here's what he said. Some search only for what they can take, but a true king searches for what he can give. And Jesus, being our true king, is the one who came and laid down his life. He says, I, the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. No one's laying down, taking my life from me. I am laying it down voluntarily god loves you he's proved it by the fact that jesus died for you he also his love is proved by what who he died for there are four descriptions paul gives he says he died for the powerless to be powerless means you have no ability to improve your condition you can't change your status you can't make yourself better. You can't make yourself alive. The Bible says that we were dead in our transgressions and sins, and therefore we needed to be brought to life, but we had no power or capability to change that condition. We were the walking dead, literally. Spiritually speaking, we were dead. And Christ died for us when we were, we were powerless and he says, at the right time, what's the perfect time? Well, in the Roman Empire, it was Pax Romana. It was a time of peace, and there was a, there was a common language, and there was an elaborate uh, road system and where the gospel could travel quite easily. But here's, the I think, the, 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 the biggest inability of the powerless of humanity was humanity had had the, the, the laws of Moses for 1,400 years, but ain't nobody could keep them. No one was powerful enough to keep the law. And so in our helpless and hopeless condition, Christ died for us. He died for the ungodly, he says. What does it mean to be ungodly? There's no reverence for God. There's no fear of God. There's no seeking after God. It's just we live in, in our own self-image, and we we determine what God will be and what he will not be, and we will do what we want, when we want, and how we want it. And so the ungodly, the in, this distorted image of God within us. Now, people aren't as always as bad as they could be. Remember this, even a broken clock tells the right time twice a day. He says he died for sinners. Notice verse 7, he says, but very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man though a good man someone might possibly dare to die now the word righteous there is not in the terms of being saved he's speaking of a righteous person a person who has a moral code in other words they they try to live a moral life as much as they possibly can and so you know someone may probably wouldn't die for them but for a good man that means you don't only have a moral code but you're just a good person you're just like you help people and you do good things and you know, and so you are very valuable to somebody, and therefore it might be that they are willing to, um, you know, lay down their life, take a bullet for you, and lay down their life in, in place of you. And so Paul is doing a comparison here, and he's saying, in essence, listen, while we were ungodly, while we were sinners, as he says in verse 8, God demonstrated His love while we were yet sinners. Not only we were sinners, we were ungodly, and therefore we weren't really righteous, we weren't very moral. We had nothing to bring to the table. We just like we were in this, this condition of being under God's wrath and under God's judgment. And so at that moment in our lives, he died for us. And when he died for us, there was nothing good, lovable, or noble, or admirable about us. And he goes on to say in verse 10, he died for his, his enemies. He didn't wait for you to surrender. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And through Romans 1 through 3, he says, listen, we were all enemies of God. Whether you realize it or not, understood it or not, God considered us his enemies. Romans chapter 8 and verse 7. Remember, the, the mind that is ungodly, it is hostile towards God. And so mankind, apart from God, does not delight in God, doesn't worship God, doesn't really care about God. You may want to use God and get things from God and do your own thing. This is our condition. This is how God demonstrated his love for us, that while we were powerless, we were ungodly, we were sinners, we were enemies, Christ died for us. How much more does God have to do to prove his love for you? So therefore, when you are in pain, and you are in suffering, and it is being prolonged, and maybe your life is coming to a closure, it is coming to an end, Do not allow the evil one to dupe you into thinking, I told you God doesn't love you. He doesn't even really care about you. He doesn't even really like you because that is a lie from the enemy. God has demonstrated and proven his love for you. That will never ever change because you've been justified in Christ. This is a whole different way of approaching pain and suffering Then when your mind is battling and your emotions are battling with God, God, if you really loved me, you would. God proved his love. And the last way he proved his love is how he relates to us. He reconciled us. To reconcile means to take two opposing parties and to bring them together in oneness or in harmony. For example, if you've got a couple who's married and they're having marital problems, and then they, one day somebody comes in and says, I want a divorce. What does that mean? There's no longer harmony. There's no more oneness. The Bible says the two are to become one. And so now there's a wedge that's been driven between them. And so sin was the wedge that drove separation between us and God. And so through Christ, because you've been justified, God says, now I've brought you in oneness with me, in harmony with me. I, we are reconciled in relationship. Do not ever forget, I have never and ever, or no, nor will I ever leave you or forsake you. You never walk this journey alone. It's just not happening. And so the product of God's goodness and love, verse 11, is authentic joy. Not only is this so but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now have received reconciliation again that rejoicing means to boast to celebrate remember what Dr. David said in Psalm 136 he says I will sing to the Lord because he has been good to me 2 years into my tenure here at this church um there was a family here, and the father's name was Jim Rinaldi, and I don't think Greg and Heather are here today. Heather was his daughter. He was diagnosed with kidney cancer. And uh, at one point, myself and the deacons, we all went to his house, and we prayed over him and anointed him with oil and just believed in God for a miracle and for healing, and that healing never took place. And I remember when Jim was in his final days of his life here on earth, I was sitting on the side of his bed in his home and um, Marilyn, his, his wife and Heather and Dawn were all there. And, uh, but I was with him just one-on-one alone and, and Jim was kind of, he's propped up and he's looking at me and I know, he's, you know he's, he's under a lot of medication. He was under hospice care at this time and I don't know how much he was understanding uh, or comprehending and I thought to myself, what, what, would I, what do I say to a person who's about to leave this world? What, what are the words that I would speak? And I shared some things with him, and I don't know how beneficial it was to him or not. But I thought about and asked myself that recently. What would you want somebody to say to you? In your final moments, and you're about to leave this world, And here's what I, would, I thought to myself. God is good, and he loves me. God is good, and he loves me. I think that's the message of Paul in Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. When I received my diagnosis just a little over a week ago, you know, I'm having this cystoscopy, and which is like a torture chamber from hell. Um, and the doctor says, you have a tumor in your bladder and it could be cancerous and we'll have to do a biopsy and scrape that out and cauterize, to stop the bleeding. And you know, when you hear the, the word cancer, your mind immediately goes to the dark side. And so I'm, I'm driving home and my wife and I, and from the be- very beginning, um, I decided I will not, regardless of the outcome, I will not allow this to steal my joy or my worship. I will not allow Satan to have that victory. And so Satan, again, is always going to bear, you know, try to build that false narrative in your mind and steal your joy and your worship. And people were asking me, they said, well, what were your first thoughts? How did you feel? Did you feel fearful? And... Um, I was not angry with God, I did not blame God, I didn't ask why me, I know so many beautiful, wonderful people who are God-fearing followers of Jesus who are struggling with cancer, and why not me? Why them, why, what makes me so special? I would not ask that question. As for fear, um, I do not fear death, I do not fear leaving this world, I know where I'm going. I have that assurance. I've been justified in Christ. I, I know what happens after this body breathes its last breath. My fear was primarily focused on losing the precious years with the people I love. And my constant thought was, what if I don't get to see my grandchildren grow up? They're to the age, if God were to take me home, they wouldn't remember me or they have very few memories, very faint. That bothered me more than anything. I know that if God has deemed that this would take me off this planet, um, my wife will be okay, my friends, my family, you as a church, you're going to continue on in life. I know that. I understand that. And you will. Don't give up on me yet. As I traveled to church last Sunday, you know, after receiving that news, and I'm driving here, and it's just so surreal, surreal because, you know, things begin to crystallize when you you're facing cancer or the possibility of a terminal illness, and you know, you just things become very crystal clear to you about what's important and what's not important. And as I was driving here last Sunday, and I was thinking about this and thinking, well, will I be driving this same road next year? But here's here's what I thought. You know, I have three options. Either A, they do the surgery on the 24th, and I have no cancer. It's just something that they had to, you know, assist or something. They had to get out and cauterize. Or two, I have cancer, uh, but God's going to heal it either miraculously or through medical treatment. Or three, I have cancer. And for some reason, it can't be cured and I die. It really doesn't matter which option I have because in the end, I win. And the reason I win is because of Christ and him alone. And so I would sing as David sung. I will sing of the goodness of God and I will sing of the amazing love of my heavenly father. We have the names of God, some of the names of God on the walls of our church. And so like David, Elohim, my God, Jehovah, the promise, Elohim, God, and what you represent, and the power we have, Jehovah Shema. Jehovah Shema means that God is there. God never leaves. He never forsakes. He He's always walking with you, even through the deepest and darkest valleys. And Jehovah Rophe, which means that God has the power to heal. He can heal miraculously. He can th- heal through medication. He can heal through death. It is His choice. My hands and your my life and your life is in His hands. He of Jehovah Jireh. I know that everything I need, God will provide because He is the God. God of provision He is the God who is Jehovah Shalom. He is the God of peace He can keep you in perfect peace in the deepest darkest valleys of your life. He is Jehovah Sadenu, which means he is my righteousness. I am righteous in Christ because I've been justified by Christ. I am at peace with God I have the privilege of being in his presence. I have the proof of God's love over my life and I know that authentic joy is a result of this relationship. He is Jehovah Rohi, he is my shepherd the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, right? He's the one who makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness sake. And even though I may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because God is with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. He has prepared a table in the presence of my enemies. He has anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever forever. He is Jehovah Nisi. He is my banner. He is the one who fights for me. He is Jehovah Im Kadesh. He is my sanctification. I am sanctified in Christ. I am secured in Jesus, and therefore, I have reason to worship always. Amen. Let's pray.